0: Hi, I'm Kristen Shorten and this is my extended chat with Dan Pronk during the filming of Voodoo Medics. So Dan Pronk's my name. I worked as a regimental medical officer with the Army, so a doctor attached to Army units and uh, served with a number of units but at the time of discharge was with the Special Air Service Regiment. So I guess first and foremost, I'm a dad, so three school-aged boys. Primary school age boys, and so they keep my, my wife and I very busy. Uh, I work as uh, my full-time day job is in a, um, as a, a medical director for a, a statewide uh, medical capability, which is, is quite interesting and brings with it its own complexities. The army picked me up in 2001, sponsored me through, so, uh, but by the time I turned up to, to my first job in uniform, I was a qualified doctor. So started in 2001 and discharged early 2014. So I spent uh, I spent a little under 14 years in the Army uh, full-time and then a little bit of time after that as a reservist but about 14 years full-time and in that period of time I served with uh, one of the 1st Combat Services Support Battalion, was my first posting up in Darwin, from there I went across to the 5th Battalion, 5 RAR, uh, one of the infantry battalions in Darwin and then went to 4 RAR which subsequently became the 2nd Commando Regiment during the time I was there and and then to the special air service from there. In 2008, so about 18 months into my uh, time in uniform, I was able to, to get onto the selection course for the SAS. And, and that was something I'd wanted to do for some time. I'd, I'd had a bit of uh, an insight into the SAS. My, my best mate uh, in, in the early 2000s had gone across to the unit and I'd seen a little of what was involved. And so that had always been my intention to attempt the selection course. And I, I got that opportunity It was an interesting having done my medical schooling and junior doctor time in a civilian hospital and and come into medicine via that pathway despite the fact that I was a full time army, I hadn't spent any time in uniform and then it was learning to adapt that civilian military skill set, medical skill set into a military context. And then the next evolution of that I found to happen after I'd started doing a bit of time on the ground in Afghanistan, and probably on my second trip of Afghanistan was when it really it was a real transition point for me. That trip, we'd started to the task group started to to lose guys, and these were were people I knew, they were friends of mine, and and I was on the ground trying to trying to respond to them when they were injured, and so it was a really it was a really intimate position to hold to be honest like to be that 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 doctor or that medic on the ground looking after mates of yours in those environments and it was a real as I went along I with hindsight I can see that more and more of my identity became my job and so I was that was how I saw myself that was where I drew myself worth from was my ability to function in that environment in that job and and which caused real problems when I came to transition out of defense So over my four trips to Afghanistan, I worked out that I did about 100 combat missions, and and that encompassed the full range of mission profiles that the task group would do, but also the forward aeromedical evacuation missions that I flew with the the U.S. I remember quite vividly the first time that I was in proper combat, where I was getting shot at accurately, and I, I found it to be a really invigorating experience. I never found it to be scary, I never feared for my own life, I never felt the terror that some people describe in those situations, and I guess in a way it did become a little bit addictive, the, uh, that, that rush, and I, I think I've heard other people describe the same thing, that you, and you, you, you can never get anything quite like that. Uh, in, you know, I haven't had anything like that since. Just that anticipation of loading onto the helicopter flying out to target, getting the, the warning calls sort of yelled out over the sound of the, the, the helicopter uh, when you're approaching target and just that, your, your heart rate had come up, your blood would start pumping and, and, and eventually you'd get that 30 second call and the helicopter would, would flare and hit the deck. And, and by that time it was, you're sort of at fever pitch, you know, you're just so excited. And the, we'd trained endlessly with our hit on in reality-based training. So it was all programmed in our muscle memory to be able to reach for a tourniquet, I can still got the (laughs) hand actions now, but your tourniquet be on the, the, the front of your rig there. And that was the same with everyone. Well certainly by the five minute mark when we were approaching target and certainly before the one minute mark my my highest priority was always to make sure that the magazine on my rifle hadn't dislodged and so you'd give that a bit of a a whack and then out of habit I had a tendency to hit the the bolt assist on my rifle so that was a bit of a, a routine there just to make sure you had a round firmly chambered in your rifle in case you needed to to use it as soon as you got off the helicopter. And then with the, the medical side of things, I'd, I'd just reach and make sure that my tourniquet was still exactly where I, I expected it to be and hadn't been dislodged. And then just go through the process of checking in, in the I had a little pocket on the front of my chest rig there that I had a couple of decompression needles and also some nasal airways. So just making sure that they are all there where I expected them to be. And then my various thigh pockets on either side I had my what's called quick clot, so the the dressing that speeds up the clotting process in the left and then some larger pressure dressings on the right and just making sure that that was all where it should be. Anyone looking at special operations from the outside, all you see is the the shiny stuff. You see the the go fast stuff, the action, the painted rifles, the bearded operators, the ballistic sunglasses, but like any of these things, the the reality of it is, is very different but certainly the, the, there was a good saying, fun for the first five minutes in uh, special operations. And that's what a lot of this stuff was. It was great for five minutes and then the reality of it set in and you realise it's, it's just hard work and you're hot, cold, tired, thirsty, bored. Uh, and then that fraction of exciting scattered in there. Well, I think that the biggest stress of being a medical element attached to a special operations uh, unit is that you're ultimately there's times where you're the the medical bloke on the spot where you've got a friend of yours dying in front of you or injured or dying in front of you and you're it in the more recent conflicts with the nature of the wounding we started to move towards what we call the platinum 10 so we had this golden hour this platinum 10 minutes and that was with things like the big dismounted ied strikes where people would sadly oftentimes lose both their legs be bleeding significantly from large arterial wounds and so you've got probably in that setting you've got a matter of a few minutes to get the arterial tourniquets on and stop that bleeding otherwise that casualty is going to bleed out and die so yeah that first the first management really needed to be within minutes a lot of the time and then the time to to surgery uh, within an hour was the standard we'd shoot for. Bleeding out from, from a extremity wound was uh, and, and remains the number one cause of preventable death on the battlefield. Sadly, there's lots of soldiers that are going to be injured and you're not going to be able to save them. Things like gunshot wounds to the head or gunshot wounds or blast injuries, penetrating injuries to the chest or abdomen, things that you can't do a lot about in the field setting. They need surgery or their wound is unsurvivable. And then as we got into my second... Rotation, which was rotation 15 in mid 2011, that was when it really hit home for me. We, we had a series of incidents where we had soldiers killed. So in three in in, in a six-week period, so in pretty quick succession, uh, all of which I knew uh, some some of those better than than others, and all of which I was there on the ground when they were killed, and that really redefines me personally and professionally. If you, if you were within line of sight of it, you'd, you'd see the flash at a night time before you heard the, the, the sound of it. You know, it's a, it's a noise that stops everything. The loss of Brett was a real turning point in, in my military career, but also myself personally. It was that he was the first bloke that I was on the ground. I was the, the re- responding medical capability and ultimately he uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't save Brett. Brett was the first time that I'd responded to a friend of mine in a, a fairly dire situation. He was horribly injured and we, we, we couldn't save him, sadly. So it sort of was a really hit home that we were playing for keeps, that this was, this was real and that this was uh, not a game and these were the consequences of, of what we were doing. So there's a few key dates that, that I remember clearly and, and sort of stopped to think about each year. And the 6th of June is one of those. In, in 2011, we were on a series of jobs. Uh, we'd done the first of which, and on in- extraction from that, we'd had a guy shot. Fortunately, it was a through and through wound and he made a great recovery. And then on the second job, we'd completed our mission. And then as we were about to extract, sadly, we had a, 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 another soldier shot and, uh, and once again, I responded to him, but he couldn't, couldn't be saved. So that day we lost, Ryan uh, Rowan Robinson. It, naturally, when we got that call, we wanted to get to Rowan as quickly as we could. And so just turned and, and ran with that kit and made the, the best pace that we both could back up the hill to where Rowan was. The crew on the ground had done a great job of doing the initial assessment and initial response to Rowan. It was very complex trying to manage him within the confines of the the uh, pit that he was in. And given that we were still being uh, heavily engaged by the, the enemy, it wasn't a great position to be able to try and respond to a casualty. But from the outset, his, his injuries... Uh, it, didn't look good they didn't look good he was very badly wounded ryan wasn't showing any signs of life at that point however it wasn't an environment within which i could can confirm him to to uh, to be deceased and so in that in that context you do every, everything you can you do everything you can in the hope that there still might be some activity in his in his uh, heart and his brain there and and so we we just worked through the process of evacuating him getting a, a um, a helicopter in which was not an aeromedical evacuation asset but it was one that, that actually was fitted with a stretcher that happened to be in the area so we managed to bring that in and I hopped on and and we did everything that we could myself and a, another medic to go through the motions of preserving life if there was life to be preserved we did all the interventions that were appropriate and then sadly with hindsight the, it, it became apparent that Ryan was probably uh, dead pretty shortly after he was shot if not instantly. Look, I, I didn't know Rowan well, uh, but I, what I do know is that the nature of his injuries told me that he was exposed and he was facing the enemy and he was fighting alongside his mates when he was killed and he was doing that to ensure that our element was safe to extract. So I didn't know the guy, but I, I know that about him, that he, he, he was he was fighting, he went down fighting. When we got back to to the Tarenkout with Rowan, uh, we'd we, the ambulance had met us there and they would whipped him off to the, the surgical facility to do their response. Rowan took off in the ambulance, the helicopter took off and I, I was just there by myself and, and sort of, it was a a odd experience. I didn't, I just felt numb. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't have any mental reference point to, to know how to react. I, I, I couldn't cry. I didn't feel particularly sad. I, I just was, was completely numb. I think at that point I knew that Rowan's injuries were unsurvivable and I knew that it was inevitable that we were going to be having another ramp ceremony. I guess when you're a, particularly a doctor, there's there's a lot of empathy and sympathy that's expected there. And I think the roles that I found myself in, I'm not sure if it was a protective mechanism, that, that I didn't allow myself to, to feel the emotion of the situation and there was no room to grieve or process those emotions that that was going to be counterproductive to the the purpose of the task group and so you just had to push it aside and and keep going and then deal with it later we lost todd uh shortly after we'd lost rowan and and then brett before that and so by that point the the task group was just just taking hit after hit after hit and it was starting to to add up and and Todd had been fundamental to our response to to Brett when Brett was hit. So he'd led the quick reaction force that I was a part of that that went to to Brett to respond to him. And on the day that Todd was killed, we'd had uh, another one of our guys shot. Uh, so about 10 minutes before Todd was shot, we'd had another guy shot and we were trying to mount a response to him, which we couldn't end up getting to him. And then we got the call that, that Todd had been hit and we responded to him and, and he'd been up on a on a rooftop exposing himself to be able to coordinate the, the covering fire to extract uh, the guy that we'd had shot previously. So, uh, you know, another one of these these uh, sort of heroic actions that unfortunately led to, to his passing. And, and I think by that time, the, the stress of that cumulative, these three guys who I hadn't been able to respond to medically and save any of them uh, was, was just starting to, to add up and have an impact on me. It certainly also made me look hard at what risk I was exposing myself to in my military role, I started to expose myself to less and less trauma if I had the choice. So after we lost the three blokes in pretty quick succession, I I found that that I was having a lot of intrusive thoughts, a lot of bad dreams, reliving uh, events, uh, and which was very counterproductive to trying to stay functional in the role that I was there to do. And I found the best way to deal with that at that time was just to stay really busy. I found that if I stayed up very late and then set an alarm to get up very early and, and had somewhere around the three four hour sleep mark that I wasn't falling into the, the deep sleep where I'd have the bad dream. so I, I was just doing what I could there to to manage that and to keep functioning in the role that I was there to do. But I think it was necessary at the time but but unsustainable, and so I'd, I'd end up drinking drinking a lot more coffee in Red Bull than was was healthy. And ultimately it was, it was getting towards the end of the trip and so I could eventually get back home and then that was the first time that I really, things caught up with me and I was able to, to basically let my guard down. I was out of Afghanistan, back with my family and that was when I started to process some of the, the trauma that I'd experienced on that trip. Basically, I, I didn't differentiate myself from my role and my role under those stresses and, and I... I, I cut my hair down into a mohawk and grew a, a goatee beard and, and I guess outwardly I was was felt myself just being one in the same with that role of, of a, a combat doctor just operating purely uh, mechanically in that function. All, all emotion was, I, I kind of had to remove that from myself at the time to keep going. The reality of what had happened started to set in after that second trip and initially I was adamant that I was never going to go back but that didn't last very long at all I went back to work and then before I knew it I was I was busting to get back there and and looking back now I'm not sure if I was seeking some form of closure I'm not sure if I felt that if I could get back to Afghanistan and actually respond and save one of our guys that that would somehow uh, Helped me process the 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 events of the blokes that I couldn't save. And within weeks of being back on the ground, the task group lost another bloke, another uh, bloke that I was mates with, and and we I wasn't in the field when when he was hit. I was I was at the forward surgical team at the surgical element when he came back out of the field. No one had been killed since I left, and then I turned up again, and, <laughs> and some, we'd lost another uh, task group member. So that fourth bloke that I was uh, a part of his resus was a, a SAS bloke by the name of Blaine Didham's. So I'd done my fourth and final rotation of Afghanistan, and, and come home from that, thankfully we didn't lose any task group members on that. And the, the very last person who I saw at um, Camp Russell before I left Afghanistan was, was Cameron Baird. And so I just saw him briefly, went down the flight line, said goodbye, told him to stay safe and, and came home. And once again, found it really hard to assimilate back into life at home, just felt restless and disconnected and, and had this this strange impending sense of doom that something bad was gonna happen. And, and as it happened, I, I, Cam sadly lost his life uh, a, a couple of months after I got home. And so that was... Uh, That was the news that that some part of me was almost waiting for in a in a strange way i had this feeling something bad was going to happen and sadly that was what it turned out to be i had the the privilege of working with well three victoria cross winners it really was a a privileged position but uh, certainly most closely with with mark donaldson vc so and uh, i recall actually the one instance where Dono was, was out in the field and, and they'd, they'd come under heavy contact and they'd, they'd actually lost one of their dogs on that occasion. And, and we had caught wind, I was back at base at the time, and we had caught wind that we'd sustained a casualty on that patrol that one of the blokes had been, had been shot. And it transpired that that was indeed Dono. And uh, rather than, than put his hand up for medical evacuation, he decided to, to stay in the field until the job was done uh, sort of 12 odd hours later. And it wasn't until they'd finished their job, extracted as they would as per usual off target, that, that Dono rolled into the, the medical center and uh, and showed me the bullet hole with the, the, the bullets still in him. So yeah, hard hard individual. So I'd gotten back from my fourth trip of Afghanistan and, and that was just before the birth of our third son. And it was at that point that my wife and I decided that it was time for me to, to stop uh, doing what I was doing and, and so I'd, I'd put in my discharge from the SAS and then at the end of that posting posted out moved interstate uh, back to my wife's hometown and that was when things really started to catch up with me I, hadn't, I had a lot of time to to process things I was unstimulated I was out of my environment but I think most importantly i'd been unplugged from this occupation that i identified as as me i was no longer I'd, I'd, i was still trying to be that guy but i was i was back as a civilian and uh, had a lot of time to sit around and think and that was when things started to catch up with me a little bit i found if i stayed very busy that i, I did better so i i trained physically hard i i I I'd set about building this space around me. This was a great project, a very cathartic project uh, to, to busy myself just day in, day out so that I had a focus. I had something to apply my mental energy to my physical energy to. Uh, and, and ultimately it's, I, I fell into the, the trap that many of us do, maybe drinking a little more than I should have. And with the, with the the goal of trying to be able to get to sleep and have a decent night's sleep without the intrusive thoughts and dreams. Yeah. So it's, it's, It's been an interesting transition. I'd gone through that that somewhat dark period when I first got out and and a degree of post-traumatic stress, but also that loss of identity together really led to a bit of a, a bad patch. And then I was able to start rebuilding my, my self worth and as I got more and more distance from the events I found that the intrusive thoughts and the, the physical reaction to those intrusive thoughts was getting less and less and so I, I came back and then when I started working I'd I'd been doing a, a an MBA, a Master of Business Administration. I wanted to keep mentally very busy uh, once again to have a focus so that I didn't sit around thinking too much and and so I was I was building a skill set that was applicable to civilian jobs. I moved up to Queensland, a good friend of mine gave me an opportunity up there and so I started working for him. Very busy work in an ED up in Queensland, but also helping running a little hospital up there and started to really identify myself as that person, which was great. I started to recreate my self-identity and self-worth there. And and then I, I, I experienced this strange transition whereby I started viewing things very differently, I started to having experienced those really negative experiences overseas all of a sudden I was recalibrated to that was a bad day losing mates in the field in Afghanistan that was now my bad and I started to see how good we've got it in Australia you know things that that used to bother me before those experiences all of a sudden just didn't, they became trivia and you know, I realized that that we've got running water, we're safe, my, my kids are here, they're never gonna stand on a device and, and you know, blow themselves up and, and what have you and started just really experiencing what, what the post-traumatic growth. Uh, so really just uh, found myself a, a whole bunch more positive than I had been prior to those experiences. To be honest, I wouldn't change anything about what's happened. I, it's only because of those really profoundly negative experiences that I'm now able to fully appreciate what I have in life. It's because I've sort of been there to experience the, the deaths of people like Todd, who has kids of his own, that I can really appreciate my kids, people like Brett, uh, you know, and... and Leaving a wife behind that I really appreciate my wife Rowan, the, the parents, and you know, my, sadly my, my, my father passed away last year, but just that that experience and that engagement, that re-engagement at, at a, a level higher than ever before allowed me to to take my relationships to, to the next level and really appreciate what was right in front of me before, but I couldn't appreciate it because I, I hadn't seen how, how bad it could be. So the net sum of my experiences has led me to where I'm at now, which is a great place to be, so I wouldn't change any of it. I think there's a, a lot of emphasis, which there should be, on post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and that's, that's quite right, that should be there. It's, it's, it's unfortunately we're losing a lot of veterans to suicide and a lot more are just disabled by post-traumatic stress disorder. But I fear that as a result of that publicity, we 're losing sight of the the soldiers that experience this trauma, but then come back and, and maybe keep on soldiering or discharge move into a civilian role and, and actually do really well you know for the most part the the blokes that i 've served with that have gotten out are, are applying that same skill set that made them effective soldiers in a civilian uh, entity and in, indeed some of them are excelling they 're running multimillion dollar businesses and and they're they're doing fantastic things and and I think it's it's healthy for the general public to to realize that that not every every soldier that experienced uh, something in Afghanistan or Iraq is broken it's uh, it's not necessary that you have to have post-traumatic stress disorder lots of people don't and uh, indeed lots that have experienced significant trauma have managed to process that now then at a much better place than they were before because of that trauma and that's the whole post-traumatic growth piece and I think it's a it's an under told narrative uh, in this this world where it's all gloom and doom post-traumatic stress disorder and so I think it's it's good to get that out there.